This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Wendy Seifer, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Good. You're. Uh, we're talking internationally, and I guess when we say internationally, this is about as far apart as you can get. So I'm in the United States, North Carolina, and you're in you're in Melbourne, Australia. So I guess it's uh, evening for me and morning for you. So I should say good morning to you. Yes. Well, good morning slash good evening. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to talk about nihilism today. Um, fun topic. And I, I guess I, I say that somewhat ironically, but um, you managed to to make a case that uh, the philosophy that we call nihilism is actually something that, that we should uh, see more potential for joy. And so I'm, I'm curious as to uh, kind of to go in that direction. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll just start with introductions. Um, I'm Kevin Curry-Knight. I'm a teaching associate professor at East Carolina University in North Carolina, USA. And you are? I'm Wendy Seifert. I'm a writer and editor, and I am the author of The Sunny Nihilist. And then uh, before this, you also wrote a book uh, about activism, which hopefully we'll kind of bring into the conversation as well, right? Yeah, there is more crossover than you would you would guess. Nice, nice. Yeah, I, I definitely want to ask you about that because it, it, at first blush, it seems like nihilism, which is kind of the theory that nothing has inherent meaning and activism seem like strange bedfellows, but uh, I'll be interested in hearing kind of the connection that you see there. Why don't we start by just kind of giving a um, summary, the elevator summary, I guess, if you will, of, of what this book is. So, I mean, this book is about many things, but it's about obviously nihilism. And I think a lot of people's understanding of nihilism is pretty negative, but also maybe pretty one-dimensional. Just this idea that nothing matters, everything is meaningless. So, you know, you should just kind of get back into bed and put the covers over your head. But I sort of use nihilism as a bit of a window to kind of step back and ask more broadly, kind of not just what does it mean if life is meaningless, but more also what is our relationship to meaning in kind of 2021 look like at the moment? And something I'm super Mm -hmm. interested in and a lot of the book kind of deals with is how we've kind of become to be so obsessed with finding and assigning meaning to every part of our life. And this kind of Mm -hmm. understandable impetus that you would think that enriching everything with kind of like a narrative and a meaningful message would make you feel better. But from you know my research and my observation, I would actually say that this kind of generational obsession with meaningful interactions is kind of making us miserable. So mm. I present nihilism as kind of a tool to break apart some of those sort of empty, meaningful habits that we formed that I think might be sort of poisoning our brains a little bit. Yeah, interesting. Um, so for those listeners who aren't familiar with the philosophy of nihilism, we should probably just start off with kind of a broad understanding of what this is, what what it means, where does it come from, um, and why is everyone so down on it? Yes, very fair. Uh, I, I've got to say, I don't judge anyone for being skeptical of nihilism. It doesn't have the sunniest reputation up until this point. Uh, so even though it wasn't founded by Friedrich Nietzsche, it's very much been popularized by him. He's kind of like the poster boy of nihilism, as I mm. like to say. Uh, he was a German philosopher from the 19th century and into the early 20th century. And he was very interested in this idea of kind of nihilism and meaninglessness. And something that he personally explored and was kind of very passionate about is he was very wary of kind of systems. So whether that was political systems, he was very, very anti-religious, um, or kind of really st- systems in the sense of like structures of power. So anything when someone kind of believes in a construct of 
why the world is how it is and this idea of that there are kind of inherent values and inherent rules that we should follow. And he was sceptical of this and really felt that it could be exploited by people um, as a way to kind of serve their own means. Friedrich Nietzsche, again, as I said, has kind of in time been seen as like a bit of a negative figure. He's, I actually have a real soft spot for him, not surprisingly. Um, yeah, but also I see, do as well. Yeah, seems as quite a tragic figure as well. He had a pretty hard life. He had a pretty severe mental and physical breakdown in midlife, never really recovered from it, became like increasingly physically disabled as he got older. Um, and by the end of his life at the turn of the century, you know, was barely able to kind of to mm. write and communicate, which is where his sister came in, Elizabeth, who was a much less sympathetic figure, uh, fan of the Nazis, mates with Hitler, pretty awful person. And she sort of later in life tasked herself as being the like executor of his work and his estate and kind of got into the habit of sort of republishing unpublished work, cutting and pasting and framing a lot of his work on nihilism, obviously through her kind of distorted lens. And I think that's really the kind of fork in the road where we sort of see nihilism maybe fracturing into the way that a lot of people have probably understood it now as being this super negative thing. Um, I think I, I'm pretty sure Hitler came to her funeral, like really awful woman. Mm. And I think that's where nihilism's kind of entanglement with fascism, which I mean continues up until today. And this idea of it being kind of this really destructive and quite selfish philosophy comes into play. But something I'm sort of interested in is, yeah, if you strip it really right back to that, to Nietzsche's like base understanding of it, which is actually pretty apolitical, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that I think has become buried in a century of sort of toxic interpretation. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because with Nietzsche, I know that I've I've seen almost like a <clears throat> chicken and egg explanation of like which came first, the the sort of discovery of nihilism and meaninglessness or his madness, right? I've seen it explained both ways by different people. Some theorize that uh, his kind of discovery of nihilism and the meaninglessness of of the world around us kind of led to his madness and then others say his madness may have led to his nihilism some say that they're completely separate i mean it it seems like to the best of our knowledge wasn't it i think syphilis potentially which which helped cause his 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 madness so it didn't seem to have anything to do with his philosophy per se yeah i mean it's one of these things like we love trying to retroactively diagnose people who existed before we were born. I've yeah. got to say, I love it too. I'm a, I'm a real sucker for it. I think, you know, we'll never really know. I think Nietzsche was a brilliant guy. I think he was, I mean, he was a pretty tortured soul, probably separate from this. He never, in, when you read accounts of his life and interactions with him, he never really sounds like he's having the best time. Um, yeah. As I said, I think I at one point you, at one point you say in the book, he, he probably wouldn't be the most pleasant person to sit next to at a dinner, at a dinner party. Yeah, exactly. I love that line. I often, like, um, when I was writing the book, because I spent so much time thinking about him, you know, you do wonder, like, I wonder what this person would think of me. And I was just like, this guy would hate me. <laughs> would he hate drive, everyone. Yeah, I'd drive him crazy. But, I mean, there's a story about him, which, I mean, I, you know, we love kind of creating these narrative arcs to people from the past. I don't know if it's really true, but there's this story that he saw a horse being beaten in the street and mm -hmm. he felt kind of such a kinship with that animal and like the degradation of that animal that that was the kind of the spark that led to his sort of like initial waves of nervous breakdowns um right. which i find very sad and very moving as an animal lover but i think yeah i think embedded in that story like you could see nihilism in that you could just see like a very tortured soul 
Yeah, it it, uh, it always seemed that that story always seemed a little bit at, at odds with his kind of idea that there's no inherent meaning in things that you would still find it fit to identify <clears throat> so much with with a suffering animal, not even a suffering human, which you can feel sort of a, a kind of a kinship with as, as like kinds, but like an animal that that is different than you are, that has four legs, that has a you know different body. Uh, that always seemed kind of. Um, I don't, it's not like mutually exclusive to nihilism, but it always seemed a little bit harder to reconcile for me. But I, but I mean, according to the things in your book, it, it shouldn't be that hard to reconcile. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I've, I'm conscious of, again, we sort of, we seek what we want to seek in people and we seek what we want to seek in the past. And I was careful when I was researching him to sort of not romanticize him a little bit, even though I am probably the kind of person who does that inherently. But I will say about him, like he doesn't seem like he was a great, you know, a great conversationalist or, again, someone you'd want to sit next to at dinner. But from the sort of accounts, like I think his very much approach to things where if you could kind of keep up with him intellectually and he didn't think you're an idiot, like Mm. you were kind of fine. Like he was pretty welcoming of women, like again, some women into his kind of intellectual circle during an incredibly anti-Semitic time. Um, he was kind of friends with people of different faiths. I mean, he was just kind of so anti-village and he didn't really care. I think his kind of attitude was maybe when it came to relatability, there was, I mean, this obviously doesn't relate to horses, but I think if he was kind of like, if he thought you could, you were on his level, he didn't really care who you were. Mm, um, yeah. Which I think is, again, kind of like an interesting reflection of nihilism. Like when you take away any parameters of like how we define or distinguish ourselves, you can kind of just create your own parameters. Yeah, um, I, because in in a way similar to what's in your book, which we'll kind of segue into, Nietzsche saw nihilism not as like an end state. A lot of people kind of wrongly attribute to him that that his end goal was nihilism. And it was almost more, it seems like nihilism was kind of a way, uh, a tool for thinking, like yeah, a tool exactly. for revaluation. I think it's what he called the revaluation of all values. Yeah, I think like he would probably be horrified uh, to be called a nihilist. <laughs> right, right. Right. He thought that this was something to be overcome. It was, I guess, something that you could use to kind of liberate yourself from constricting norms or whatever. Um, but that kind of leads us into the book and, and kind of where you got the genesis for this book. If I remember correctly, this started as a Guardian article, um, which you decided later to elaborate into a book. So where did you get the idea to write to write an article? I don't remember what the title of it was, too. It was really catchy. Uh, I wish I remembered the title of the article. Do you remember what that was? I think it was Sunny Nihilism. It was one of those. Was it Sunny Nihilism? I thought it was. Okay. You catch the phrase early on. Um, Ah, yeah, yeah. It was funny. It's so in my day to day life, I am a journalist and a writer. So you're kind of, I'm sure, like many people who work in the space, understand every single waking moment of your life, you're kind of mining for content. Um, The idea sort of came to me, I guess, from my own experience, which I do detail in the book, where a lot of this book is kind of talks about the way we seek meaning and the way that meaning can kind of lead us astray and make us miserable. And I, I feel like was very much kind of patient zero of this sort of thinking. I worked in digital media. I had a very intense, very stressful, but again, in hindsight, completely meaningless job <laughs> um, that was kind of rotting my brain and destroying my body. But I again thought was, absolutely central to all machinations of the universe and I had for several years in again in hindsight been kind of ramping up to what would eventually be 
just like a full on burnout breakdown period. Mm. And one day I was walking home from work, like I often did super late, really exhausted, really tired, kind of already exhausted by all the emails I was going to have to read when I got home. And I just started kind of feeling super overwhelmed. Like I, I, it's, I can still picture it so clearly in my mind. I still live in the Mm. apartment that I was walking home to. And I kind of started getting that feeling again that I'm sure people are really familiar with and you kind of start feeling lightheaded and you can't really take a breath. And I was just like, oh, my God, am I going to have a panic attack like outside this post office? And then I just had this kind of like clear bell moment where I just was like, oh, my God, like who cares? One day I'm going to be dead and like no one is going to remember me. No one is going to care about any of this stuff. None of this matters at all. This is all so meaningless. And I don't know if there's something in my DNA or if it was just like my headspace in the moment where I was probably just so frazzled, I was kind of open to any alternative way of thinking. But something that I think could have been like such a poisonous barb, I just felt like this immediate sense of relief, like such a crushing, I mean, or just like such a liberating. Mm. I literally felt my lungs reinflate. And I just stood there and it was quite late at night and I just kind of looked up at the sky and I was just like, you know, I know this is a cliche that people would say, but you know, you're just a meat, a piece of meat on a rock in space. Like yep. your life is this millisecond in human history that will have no impact. And you're just kind of part of this like organic continuum of sort of like carbon life forms. And I don't know, I just found it so liberating and so comforting. And I just suddenly felt like my actual existence had been given back to me in a second. And I just had this like incredible sense of perspective where I was like, I mean, if I'm lucky, like maybe I'll have like 80 years on this planet. It's not going to mean anything to anyone except me. So why am I trying to stuff it full of all the stuff to kind of perform for other people or kind of fulfill external expectations that were set by people probably before I was born? Whereas really Mm. the only thing I can hope for this is to kind of scratch out some kind of pleasure and satisfaction for myself. And I mean, I still, you know, got up the next day and went to work. I didn't, you know, buy a ticket to the other side of the world and sell all my worldly possessions or anything. But I think it was just this kernel of thinking that sort of would come to be a little bit like of an internal metric of how I probably tried to assign and like my own energy, my own emotional energy. And from there, when you start saying to yourself, everything is meaningless, you know, it doesn't take you long until you start Googling nihilism. Um, right. And I started reading sort of about these things and kind of became interested in Nietzsche. And then I'd had this idea for an article for a while and I, I mean, it's when you have a whole book to explain this and you're kind of sitting on a podcast with someone else who's interested in the space and you discuss it, it seems pretty tethered whether, whether it's when it's a 60-word mm. pitch to an editor being like, I think life is meaningless and, like, maybe that's okay. I think it does sound like someone's having, like, a nervous breakdown on the other side. Uh, right. So I sort of took it to a couple of people and they were sort of, well, it's funny. Everyone was like, this is really interesting. I actually feel like this too, but I don't Mm. know. Like this isn't an article. This is like kind of a stoner conversation. Um, But then I had a really good relationship with my editor, Alex Gorman at The Guardian in Australia. And she was kind of just like, yeah, I don't know what this is, but I kind of get it. And it's a vibe. And something I'd sort of taken to her was, you know, this isn't just me sitting on my balcony with a beer staring at the sky like I had started to observe this kind of thinking imprinted in a lot of like the pop culture I was absorbing I saw like refractions of it in politics in other parts of my life and she was sort of like let's explore it and then from there I mean it became an article and now a book 
And the article, um, if I recall right, gained a, a, a fair amount of uh, traction, gave a fair amount of, of readership. Yeah, I think I mean um, it was one of the number one articles in the Guardian for a few days. It was, yeah, I don't think I've ever had such a response for an article. And I mean, I've worked in digital media for big publications, and you know, have had articles before that have had a million views and things. But I just people, it just did something to people. I got so many messages, like so many shares about it. I think it's something I think about as like a writer a lot is the best content is when you can identify like a feeling before it becomes a thought. Like I always love mm. it when you post something or something goes up on Twitter and you see people sharing it with their friends and they say like, oh, this is that thing I was like kind of trying to explain to you. And mm. I think it was just yeah. an example of that. A lot of people were feeling it, but they hadn't maybe quite put words to it yet. Yeah, so I wonder what it is about um, the contemporary world where we are trying to infuse like everything with meaning. You you definitely make the point in the book. It's it's like it's it's not that we try to infuse meaning into certain areas of our lives and accept the idea that we we work in order to do those things that give us meaning. Now we're trying to infuse everything we do at work with meaning, and you have to eat a breakfast sandwich that has meaning to it, and um, you know you have to. Um, everything has to have a certain larger meaning. I wonder why that is that we've kind of expanded our search for meaning to everything. I've got to say that kind of once you start spotting it everywhere, it becomes like my favorite game, like empty meaning. I actually was in the supermarket the other day and I saw a box of tampons and it said, there's a revolution inside this box. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like there are some yeah, kind yeah. of expensive tampons inside that box. Um, right. I think. Yeah. Is it, is it, is it advertising run amok is, or is the advertising tapping into something that is already there within people? I think there are a few parts of it. I guess there's the part that I sympathize with and the part that I don't. I have a chapter in the book where I look at religion. And even though I am not religious, I have a, a pretty deep interest in religion. And I do have a lot of kind of, not uh, it's not really empathy because I don't feel bad for people who are religious, but I have a lot of kind of, I feel a kinship to people who are religious. Like I, mm-hmm. I sort of mm-hmm. understand the appeal of it. My family was religious. My parents are religious. I do think that for a lot of people, I, um, I'm in my early 30s. I'm sort of part of that generation that kind of fell off the cliff religion-wise. I mm. do think humans yeah. work, we kind of evolved alongside a sense of God or spirituality. And I think when you remove that, you are left with this kind of cavernous space in your brain that we instinctively do try and fill with stuff. And I think for a lot of people, if you sort of are searching for the kind of narrative structure and guidance that religion offers and then you remove religion i think this message of meaning that can be grafted onto anything becomes a very convenient sort of stand-in for that so that's the sort of part of it which i feel is kind of logical and again can always be exploited and i'm always worried that people are being exploited but i am not too sort of dog on because i think it's kind of pretty human way to feel this part of it that i spend a lot of the book sort of cautioning people about and I personally find very very frustrating is this idea that meaning whatever way you look at it and I know it's like a very abstract term to talk about is a very cheap offering and it's something that in advertising and especially at work it can be kind of like offered up very simply like the quest for meaning is ancient like people have we're joining, hanging out in Epicurus's garden, trying to understand the meaning of life. Uh, I think there's nothing sort of inherently wrong with wanting that 
kind of understanding if that's something that sort of speaks to you but the reality is that kind of work is I mean it's it's life consuming it takes a whole it takes a whole existence to kind of start unpacking these questions and asking yourself these really difficult kind of exploring these really difficult truths within our own existence and ourselves and I think what's kind of happened recently is that a lot of people have realized that people want that feeling of connection and reward and kind of purpose but either because of the way our lives are structured now or because they just don't want to put in that effort people aren't going and kind of living on mountaintops and meditating for 13 hours a day but if you can kind of dupe that feeling of something being valuable or Hmm. having like this mission behind it and you can kind of short circuit that like dopamine hit in someone's brain by telling them that you know using a tampon is a revolution i mean it is a revolution in some ways but i don't think in the way that those people (laughs) were talking about um then it's like quite an easy way to kind of like entice a consumer or encourage someone to work longer or harder or get someone to kind of buy into a system without having to actually get them to do the work that would be a lifetime of being involved in a system i recently watched that um Mm. I think it was was it Forbes that made that documentary on like WeWork and like the. the ah, I WeWork. was going to bring that up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you mentioned WeWork in one of your later chapters. Ah, oh, WeWork. Yeah. I could talk about WeWork all day, but I mean, to me, like it's obviously interesting to see someone lose fifty billion dollars in like fifteen seconds. <laughs> um, but just like I just thought that was such an incredible study of like the kind of bullshit meaningful narratives they crafted onto everything they did as a way to kind of get their workers and their staff and their kind of clients to buy into this thing, which was, Mm. I mean, it was a co-working space, like it's complete, like imprison your clothes, but also, yeah, to get people to work harder, to get people to kind of like put more of themselves into something, to get people to commit to something beyond what would usually be a commitment, to get someone to people to give them more money, more space, better deals. And I just thought it was such a good example of like how meaning has been commodified to just dress up Mm. things. And there's the exploitative side of it where it's like, you know, if you can say something's meaningful, you can probably pay someone less to do it. But there's also the kind of very human side where I have a chapter on work in the book and, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the sort of destruction of the modern workforce and the value of work has kind of Mm. become so sort of deregulated. But if you're a young person who is kind of working 16-hour days and barely affording to live in your share house, if you can tell yourself that your job is meaningful and the things that you're putting, you're contributing are meaningful, it does make it a little bit less soul-destroying to sure. kind of be exploited. Yeah, I, I, I recall hearing of a, a study um, maybe a decade ago. I don't even remember the, the source, but uh, secondhand, the study was described to me as it was like, I think it was about a call center. And they noticed that people um, worked harder, more enthusiastically at the call center um, when they met the people who they helped who were on the other end, the the users. They met users who they had helped. Um, it was some sort of medical call center. And uh, I, I believe, I think it was Dan Ariely was the one who told the story. He's a, uh, the, the organizational psychologist with the message that like, yeah, here's a, a, a hack for um, employers, if you want employees to be more motivated, you you make sure they have a sense of where their employment fits in the bigger picture, uh, which is basically a way to give it meaning. Um, yeah, totally. but yeah, that can certainly be exploited. 
something I kind of think about as well, and I do sort of, I'm often quite kind of careful to spe- um, specify is I see meaning and value as being kind of different. Like all jobs have value. Like even if you hate your job, mm, if yeah. it's paying you and then yeah. you go and buy groceries on the way home, you're supporting like an economy. Like that's a valuable exchange. I think as the val and I mean the most obvious value of job is just that you get paid fairly. I think what is happening is people are losing sight of value within work, of oh. of feeling kind of connected to why am I doing this? Whether that's because an employer can demonstrate value, whether you know it's a David Gerber case of just our jobs are becoming so bullshit because of capitalism, or because the actual tangible value of our jobs that we can recognize, as I said, whether it's because you you enjoy it or you you feel connected to your workplace or you feel like you're making a difference or you just get paid well when the value which is actually a tangible thing that is kind of complicated to offer and quantify disappears that's to me when meaning kind of comes in and again my experience has been in digital media which i know is a bit of a bubble but i think a lot of people have observed this in kind of journalism where journalism used to be a pretty like respected steady-ish well-paid job that you really felt like you were serving community like you know you were sort of a pillar of society like these truth tellers the reality is for most 21 year olds starting jobs in journalism now you're sort of copy editing seo optimized growth hacking listicles you're producing clickbait yeah so facebook can make money so it's like how do you motivate those people that's when you start being like yeah i see yeah i see yeah I guess I would distinguish. Um, so the the distinction you're making between value and meaning is something I think about as like relative meaning versus cosmic meaning. Like cosmic yes. meaning being something like the overall picture versus relative meaning of like I helped this family do whatever. And I was actually going to um, ask you about that because as someone who's relatively convinced of a nihilistic ish position, like one thing that I notice is. Um, I mean, it should be like you argue in the book, it should be a sort of invitation to kind of liberation in a way. But I mean, a lot of people really see it as a downside and they're kind of scared of it. And when you really drill down into why it's because they don't want to create meaning, they want to find meaning. And I guess the distinction that I see there is when you create meaning, the meaning is like contingent, you generate it, you can kind of sort of control it, you feel like it's like you generated the thing. People want to find meaning in the sense of, I want to see the meaning that's already there. And I want a meaning sort of imposed on me, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah. It I really seems like, like there's that. a drive for that. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's, I hadn't really thought of it in that way, but I think you're totally right. And that kind of gets back to what I was saying before where, you know, the quest for meaning in a nutshell is very noble, but it's like an incredible amount of work and it's really confronting. Yeah. So if you can not have to do that and just have something presented to you, of course it's more appealing. I, someone said, yeah. um, I don't, I think it was, I was watching like, I think I was watching that documentary about Jodorowsky's doom, um, mm-hmm. his failed film. And he said something like the meaning of life is you're just, you're constantly constructing your own soul. Like you're sort of mm-hmm. learning thinking and kind yeah. of setting your own boundaries and your own values and getting to know yourself. And like, that's what a life is. It's like building your kind of own soul. And I was kind of like, I don't believe in souls and meanings of life, but if I was going to believe in one, I was like, that's a pretty right. good. Right. Pretty it's it's going to be one it. that you build yeah. or that you can rebuild if you, if you feel like it doesn't fit or whatever. But I think for a lot of people that, that idea is not only terrifying, it's, it feels like it's almost fake. Like meaning is something you're supposed to discover 
as it actually exists in the world rather than something that emanates. Which is so funny to me because to me it's like, of course meaning's fake. Like it's not a physical object. It's not like carbon in the atmosphere. mm, mm, It's something mm. we invented. It's like completely like a psychological construct. So to just embrace that it's not real and it's like a tangible concept that you can kind of play with to fit into your own life, to me that makes much more sense than saying it's like something you're actually going to discover under a rock one day. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if it depends on the thing though. Like so one of the things that that I always talk to my students about whenever we talk about like the contingency of of meaning and value is okay, like think about the piece of music that you think is the most beautiful piece of music ever. You can't even fathom hearing it without hearing beauty. You hear the beauty in it. Well, someone else is going to hear that music and think it's horrible. But when you hear the music yourself, like you might know that other people are going to hear it and and think it's horrible, at least some other people, but you still can't help hearing beauty in the music, right? Or like think of, you know, a romantic partner that you have, like you look at that person and you can't help but see beauty in that person. It's not that I made the beauty up. It's not that it's, it's like, it's my valuation. I don't know. It does it. I don't know if it depends on on the the issue. I think for some of us, or I think for a lot of us, there's something that we care about so much that we can't imagine that that value we put on it is contingent. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. It feels absolute. But then I suppose in a while, like, you know, I love my partner. I don't assume every single person in his life is secretly desperately in love with him. Sure, it's funny yeah. that we can kind yeah. of like grapple with the idea that like this absolutism exists in my reality, but it is not absolute in all reality. Mm. But then when it comes to like ideas of meaning, we sort of are looking for absolutes. Funny, I I had an interview a little while ago with someone and she said something uh, about, you know, but like how does nihilism, like how can that exist with like the concept of like absolute truth? Like we know some things are just true. Right. And I was almost like, oh, my gosh, am I just, like, way further down, like, the rabbit hole than I realized? I was like, what do you, like, does truth exist anymore? I was like, I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, I don't even think we can kind of have that conversation at this stage. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I feel like that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, well, I, I was going to ask you about that later, at least when it comes to reconciling, like, activism towards certain things to to nihilism. But, um, no, I did, I, I did first want to get into, um, let's see, so... So you mentioned in the book um, kind of the generational, like you, you think that this, the generation that you're a part of and the generation maybe behind it, Generation Z, is, I guess it's usually referred to, is sort of primed for a sort of nihilistic outlook on things. Um, can you explain kind of what you mean by that? Yeah, totally. Funny, I was, um, I think I was watching something about like the 60s the other day and I was like, mm. well, I guess every generation thinks it the world's ending well that, that's what i was it. gonna that's that's yeah. what i was gonna ask actually because it seems like every generation at least has some way to distance itself from the values that were pre-established but that doesn't have to be nihilism it could just be taking certain values and kind of holding them up in, on, under a microscope yeah there's like a cyclical uh, nature of sort of wanting to remake the world every time you right. enter it which i mean i love and think is super cool and exciting and i hope in yeah. 15 years time someone's well you know i'm, I'm 43 I, i'm 43 and i'm starting to get to that age where i'm like yeah, maybe kids are doing it wrong <laughs> I, like I, I think when i was 30 i was like yeah this is great um i i keep myself in check but yeah i think once you once you get into your 40s and past your 40s you're like yeah uh, no i think we did it pretty well there was that great New York Times article recently of like millennials at work complaining about Gen Zs or just being like, I don't understand yeah. the Gen Zs. 
And I was like, this <laughs> yeah. is very valuable. <laughs> it's happening too soon. Usually it's a generation or two behind is like Gen X is the one who's supposed to be criticizing Gen Z. I know. It's funny that, you know, they say nostalgia is speeding up, but I think also like um, frustration is speeding up as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess, I mean, I know that obviously every generation has their own narrative about this. I suppose speaking to my experience, because I can only speak as a millennial who does try to connect with the Gen Zs as best she can. Um, I think something that I think a lot about, and I, again, I am very conscious that like we tend to romanticize and create narratives of our own heads is there's been, I mean, obviously so much discussion almost to the point that it has become a cliche um, or like a bit of a blood sport of what is life for, for this generation that sort of came of age post 9-11, post GFC, post kind of like this reckoning with the climate crisis and this kind of understanding that I know everyone thinks the generation before them really fucked it, but it's like there were some pretty big things that got fucked for us. Mm. Um, And something I'm always really interested in is a lot of, whether you're religious or not, a lot of the systems that previously provided meaning, which kind of form pillars within my book that I explore, um, mainly kind of looking at religion work and then kind of, sort of traditional it's i mean it's a very heteronormative view to look at it, way to look at it but kind of like traditional nuclear families mm-hmm. have really like fallen apart in the past like 25 35 years um yep. we've seen this kind of like big dive yeah in religious participation obviously as i've mentioned like job security has kind of tanked um i'm personally not really bummed out by the divorce rate because i think it's good that people live in bad relationships but i think that we have seen like what constitutes a traditional relationship being very much reconfigured as people kind of mm. find their own way. And I think a lot of that has made a lot of people feel very uneasy. But something that I find really interesting is I think a lot of people have looked at these systems that they were told as kids would kind of create a meaningful life and seen them either just completely implode or have been revealed to be like deeply toxic and actually like incredibly Mm. destructive and like literally destroying the planet. And I think what is kind of like a central question of this book is like when you look at all these systems and you find that they're failing and then maybe you say, well, maybe like systems that kind of create control and distribute power in general are corrupt. Like, well, then where does that leave you? And I think that's the kind of baseline of this, like, nihilistic generation that people often mm. love to talk about, this idea that people don't believe in these structures. And what I would kind of say is, obviously, unless you spend a lot of time on Reddit, not even Reddit, probably 4chan, the result of that isn't people, like, throwing their hands up and, like, just starting fires in the street. It's actually been this kind of, like, interesting reckoning with, like, okay, so why do I live the way I live? Why do I work the way I live? Why do I believe the things I believe in? And while the world is a pretty scary place at the moment, a lot of the really big cultural shifts that have been sort of based around younger people, I think are kind of exciting. Like, And the most obvious example of that is this sort of like huge wave of activism. My work has mm, been very mm. much in the environmental space, but I think you can see with the Black Lives Matter movements, yep. it's also been kind of this like huge global racial reckoning. But also... You know, there's the new topic that everyone loves talking about at the moment is the great sort of, uh, what's it, the people, like everyone's quitting their jobs, like the great resignation. Oh, yeah, the great resignation. Yeah. 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 I think like even that is kind of amazing, like that I think people have got to the other side of COVID, really looked at 
a lot of the things that they were told that their job was meaningful or why it mattered saw it held against the, you know, the toughest period in recent memory and just realized all this meaningful stuff wasn't going to save them at all and actually meant totally nothing and was like, I actually want something different myself and I'm going to go and find it. Yeah, I wonder if there's a a difference between maybe cynicism and nihilism. Like, so cynicism in this case might be young people looking at these structures that have failed them and saying, um, you all have put the value of the structure here, but you're wrong. The value is actually over there. You just have the values wrong. And nihilism would be, well, you say the value is here, but you're wrong. The value isn't anywhere inherently. It feels like those two would be different. And I'm trying to like figure out, and I'm trying to think when I'm reading your book, where I would place young people. Because you seem pre- convinced that it's really more of a nihilism. Um, whereas I, I'm, not, I'm not sure um, if it's cynicism or nihilism. I, I don't even know if, I guess maybe the future will tell us. Are young yes. people going to come to find new values the way you would expect of, of a cynic? Or would they simply kind of reject all sort of absolute values like a nihilist? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a really interesting question. Something that I thought a lot about on a personal level, but also on a wider level when I was writing this book is, um, I, I think you might have already kind of asked this or maybe it was in an email, like why does this realisation lead someone like me and a lot of the people I write about in the book to be kind of liberated and to feel free and to also feel mm. kind of dually free but also like deeply connected to each other to nature to other things in this kind of almost quite like thoreau-esque way but other people it just like eviscerates them like why like why does that happen and i kind of ask that question in the book and you know you don't want to just believe that it's like well there's something in my kind of construction of my brain that just puts me slightly different or my mum said one thing to me when I was six at the breakfast table that planted a seed that someone else didn't get planted but something that I kind of come back to a lot is this kind of idea of the self and I don't know I mean I don't have an answer to why some people take one path or another you know you could say that about anything but I think that there's part of it that approaches nihilism and says, okay, nothing matters. So then the only thing that matters is myself. Like the, my pleasure right. is absolute. And it's the only, it's like this kind of very um, like hedonistic approach where it's like, well, if nothing matters and I'm just absolutely going to gun for myself and then let's invest in fossil fuels and get rich and just do yeah. whatever. And I mean, Australia has just put out its kind of long-term environmental plan at the moment, which is, you know, carbon neutral by like 2050. And I just kind of was like, oh, my God, you guys are all going to be dead. Like, you absolutely don't care. But then something that I kind of think about a lot when I was working on this book is I think for other people, when you face this, there's almost like this dissolution of self. Like, you stop seeing yourself as an individual. And you, when you recognize that, like, well, my existence is so fleeting, like, I may as well not even exist at all. But you still have this 80 years to fill. So that's when I think what we're maybe seeing in this kind of more optimistic like activism space is you have this complete shift of focus then where it's like well if I don't matter then kind of what does then if I'm not going to be here forever then what is going to be here forever and I think that's when you see a lot of I mean I give the example of the book like you have these kind of waves of university students like dropping out of uni to go work for environmental causes because they're just like Mm. there is no guaranteed future for me so why don't I try and guarantee a future for this planet yeah 
Yeah, that sounds actually a lot like um, some Buddhist philosophers that have been considered nihilists, like Nagarjuna, um, who kind of try to convince, you know, through his his writings that that it was all basically conventional that there that nothing kind of has a, an independent existence. Value doesn't have an independent existence, so he's called a nihilist. But then the the upside, he gets to the point: well, the, the self doesn't have an independent existence either. Um, so if you're putting value on yourself, then you're, you're equally wrong in, in that thinking. sounds a lot like, like that kind of idea of, um, I guess not self. Yeah, hundred um, percent. It's something that a lot of activists and especially a lot of first nations activists, environmental activists talk about, um, this idea of kind of, you're not on the land or on country you're, you're in, or you are, you are the country, mm. you're part of it. Mm. And it's mm. such like a funny like sort of mental disconnect that I suppose, I don't know, maybe through the end of agricultural living or I'm not going to pretend to know why, when this thing happened. <laughs> but like I often think about when do we very much see it, like humans are one thing and then the natural world is the other. And then like whether it's the yeah. gum tree or the wombat or like the moth that just flew in the house, that's just yeah. a big mess. But I really, and obviously you don't walk around in the state all the time because it's hard to undo thousands of years of conditioning but like i do really try and think of like okay but what if i am just part of this sort of like biomass as well and i don't know for Mm. me i personally find it comforting and i give the example a few times in the book i have a little dog that i love very much and sometimes when i feel overwhelmed i sort of look at her and i'm just like stevie you and me we're the same like in Mm. the like the scope of human history we're just both going to be like a pile of carbon at the end of time right but why and you're made of the same stuff. You're just configured differently. Yeah, literally. And right? You're like, ultimately really, made of the same stuff. And I mean, like, in a, yeah, in a thousand years, what is Stevie's impact on the world going to be that much less than mine? Like, let's be realistic. Um, at least you probably brought a few people a lot of joy and, you know, didn't drive a big gas-guzzling car around. Mm. But even in that little kind of, like, totem in my apartment of looking at her, I find that kind of connection... I mean, it makes me feel more connected to nature, but also that kind of sense of sort of like, yeah, individual obliteration, <laughs> kind of comforting. Yeah. Well, let me ask you then, um, because you you did write a book before this one about activism. And I think we touched on it a little bit when we talked about how a, a sense of nihilism can sort of lead to maybe a de-estimation or de-emphasis of the self. And that can lead you to activism. But I could hear the critics saying something like, well, but if you're denying objective value anywhere, which a nihilist would, of course, you're going to deny it to yourself, but you're also going to deny it to whatever suffering people or vulnerable groups or whatever you're working on behalf of. So how does that get, uh, I guess, justified, so to speak? If you're a nihilist, why would you, why should you care enough about the environment or uh, vulnerable people to, to aid them. Yeah, it's funny. I think that comes back to something we sort of talked about at the beginning when we were chatting about Nietzsche. And, like, I think where a lot of people approach philosophy, I'm not trying to be dismissive of people who don't spend their whole lives thinking about Nietzsche, but I feel like people <laughs> who don't spend a lot of time in this space, there's kind of this understanding that, like, philosophies are absolute. And, I mean, as you know, you can tell, I don't think anything's absolute. Hmm. But this idea of, you know, well, 
you should kind of commit to nihilism with the same vigor that you commit to like religion and it should have all these rules that you follow and it's completely like unchangeable. And something that I think of is it's like we were saying before, you know, it's really, it's like a tool or maybe more like a window that you can use to peer through something to like figure stuff out. And it's like anything I feel like with nihilism, if you come to it with like bitterness inside you and hate and like a want for destruction, you're going to find a way to to action that but in the mm. same way that i mean if you come to christianity with that with a sense of greed you can get into a prosperity doctrine and find whatever you need um but if i think you do come to it hopefully like i would say most people do with you want to live a good life like you you don't want people to be in pain you want to try and like minimize hurt and destruction the best way you can i think that's mm. kind of when you start finding this path forward towards activism which you know, I don't think I'm a saint, but I don't actively want people to, you know, be in agony, which is why when I think I started exploring nihilism and you do kind of get to this point where you're like, yeah, well, as I said before, like if I don't really matter and if my ideas that I used to tell myself and the, the kind of systems I believed in that very much centered me and my experience and told me I was special and that I was valuable and I should be kind of like, at the heart of all things are kind of bullshit, then what kind of remains in that space? And then for me, again, I keep saying the cap's back to just like, I mean, what matters more than the planet? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess another way you could justify it is that um, to, to deny that value is objective isn't to deny that it's intersubjective. Like we create it not just individually, but we create it together. So if we create it together, even though it's not absolute, it's pretty important to make sure we have a planet and lives where we can still, we, we can keep creating it together. So like, it's important to keep the game in play. Exactly. Maybe, I don't know. That kind yeah. of idea of value and meaning again, it's like there is value in having air that you can breathe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, should have brought this up earlier, but um, I, I, when I was reading this book, coincidentally, I was, my wife was watching a comedy show called Shit's Creek. I don't know if you've oh, seen yes, it I have in seen Australia. It. It's the Canadian uh, comedy about a family who runs a motel. And one of the episodes, um, uh, the brother in the family is going to get his driver's license. His sister's with him in the car. He says, well, you give people advice all the time. Why Give me some advice. I'm nervous over here. And she says, nobody cares. And he says, what? She says, my advice to you is that nobody cares. The only person who cares whether you get your driver's license today is you. Uh, your driving instructor, he doesn't care. He's he's You're one of 25 people he's going to see that day. Um, the people at the DMV, they, they don't care. Um, I mean, I care. We care. Like, the family cares, but we don't really care as much as you do. Nobody cares as much as you do. And he looked at her and he was kind of shocked. And he's like, nobody cares. That that's a, That's a horrible thing to say. But what he found was that in some sense it liberated him from the nervousness he was feeling. And I couldn't help but like watch this part of the show and think, this seems like something that would be in Wendy's book. Right? That's, because like on, Yes, exactly. <laughs> You've nailed it. I feel like and that's like such a nice example of like you can sort of like invest in this kind of thought process and you don't need to actually go down this like rabbit hole of like what it all means and stuff. Like I think that, again, we, we're told that, 
you think like attention and being the center of things will make you feel good. And again, getting back to this idea of kind of like advertising, and I talk a lot about sort of like wellness culture and stuff in the book. And a lot of these things are really centering the art of thinking, it's not the art, the compulsion to obsessively think about yourself and elevate it into like a ritualistic sort of uh, meaningful act. And through that, you're kind of supposed to, I don't know, achieve some kind of like happiness but the reality is that actually just makes you feel like so sick and so like policed and so like overwhelmed I remember when I was a kid my mom used to say to me no one thinks about you as much as you do, you think they mm. do like if you think you like messed something up no one walks down the street and it's like you know you never walk out of a meeting and you like it's very rare you're like wow how about when that one person mispronounced that word like what a fucking idiot I think that like yeah again this kind of dissolution of self can be kind of liberating yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, the last question th- that I have is, so so what's next? This book has already been released in Australia. We're talking in November. You're going to hear this podcast in January when this book is released in the U.S. Um, well, I guess I should first ask, um, what was the reception like in Australia? And do you anticipate any sort of different reception in was, the U.S.? I mean, it was good. It was really warm. I was pretty surprised by how many people, I mean, you know, people always tweet things and say nice things and share articles and stuff. I don't know if all writers, this is just part of the, part of the parcel. I mean, obviously some people say mean things too, but it was generally more positive. Yeah, I was going to say it's Twitter. It's, you're saying people tweet nice things. I really, I I don't know what Twitter you're looking at. (laughs) I was, I mean, I tell you what, again, working digital media, I think I've got worse responses for like writing about Lana Del Rey than I have about nihilism. Oh yeah. Um, I really thought people were going to come for me with this. Like there's quite a bit of stuff. I kind of go after sort of like, you know, Reddit bros and stuff like that. There's, it's pretty anti-religion, not anti-religion, skeptical of religion. Um, I sort of like, the never... marriage chapter is probably a, a potential for controversy yeah, as well. Yeah, I got a the little chapter where you question that. Yeah, like I, I try not to be unkind, but I definitely, you know, point at a lot of things and say disagree. I was pretty surprised by how kind of open people were to it, and I got a lot of emails, and I actually continued it each week. They're still kind of trickling in. A lot of mm. like pretty personal emails of people saying that like this kind of again that idea of like nothing matters you're it's okay no one cares what you're doing has been pretty like liberating to a lot of people. It came out in Australia and the UK really at like the height of COVID. Like I didn't have a release or anything. I sort of the photo I took of myself like holding the you know the bunch of flowers someone sent me when the book came out and wearing a mask in like. It was very much like a very pandemic release. And I got a lot of feedback from people saying, you know, a lot of the book does discuss the pandemic a lot. A lot of people saying like this sort of thinking actually really did help me and sort of like did give me a sense of peace, which, Mm. you know, every time you get one of those emails, you do think like, oh, okay, so it was worth writing this book because if it made this one person feel this much better, then it's It's almost like a... It's almost like part of the book's point, right? It's 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 really whether you touched someone that matters yeah, exactly. rather than like the the ultimate meaning of did I get the book right on a cosmic scale? Yeah, exactly. And you do feel like you know it's nice to see your concept proven. One thing I was chatting to my brother about this actually the other day because I've you know I've been working on this kind of like on again and off since the article for you know going on two years now, and there's always this, this feeling of like what if I change my mind? Like what if I have some kind of like awakening? But 
this is still very much the front of my mind. This is how I function. This is how I think. I'm actually pregnant at the moment. And I, I have oh. been kind of interested to be like, oh, my God, am I going to have some kind of like motherhood awakening? But I'm very much like this baby's life is meaningless, <laughs> but that's okay. I still love it. Like, <laughs> I'm right. still going to make it good. Like, and it's okay. Yeah. I don't think, you know, I think you see, I'm, I'm now getting very interested in like the performance of motherhood online. But I think mm. some people act as like having a baby they invented, like, you know, growing as I go. But I sort of right. like, again, I find it liberating to be like, this is one of countless births that's going to happen and it's a life that's going to exist and it's fine and the world will keep spinning and it doesn't matter if I forget to take my probiotic. Like, right. Right. the human race will continue. Yeah, there's actually a lot of uh, work and this is kind of one of my areas of, of interest is looking at like the history of childhood and all that. Um, you know, you have a chapter where you kind of interrogate the how, how we think about marriage as a, a stable, monogamous, lifelong thing that's based on romantic love that endures. And um, I th- we've, we've done the same thing with childhood. We really, really have. We've put so much work on so many expectations on, um, on parents that it's like, you know, everything you do with your child matters. Every, oh every meal so that you give your child, it matters. If you don't give your child a vegetable, every single meal, right? That I read gonna- something the other day. I'm, I'm kind of not, really developed like descending into sort of parenthood books or anything, but you know, that'll grow them, make sure you see what you say. Um, but someone said something where they were like, yeah, like it's good. You should read your child and play music and like be kind to it and stuff. But they were like, do you actually think that like you painting its bedroom yellow is going to undo 30,000 years of like hard genetic coding? Like the baby's going to walk when the baby's going to walk. It's going to do what it's going to do. Yeah. 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 And and, uh, almost to your point, one of the things historians um, point out about childhood is it probably is not coincidental that the extension of uh, the infant mortality rate, the more children survive past childhood, the more intensely we guard all of our children. Mm. And the the, the rationale is, is, again, similar to, to your book. It's almost like if you come into the world and if you bring children in the world and you expect that half of them as a matter of course will not make it to adulthood just because of the way the world is you'll be sad when your children if your children die but you won't be that protective because well what can you do yeah it's only once we reach this standard of mortality that we start to think oh my god i like i really have to watch it because if my child does not make it to adulthood then obviously I did something wrong. That's so interesting. Uh, so, yeah. So, so like the, the, the more uh, likely it is that they survive, the more we treat them with care because the more valuable in some ways they, they become. It's, it's really strange. I think in the book I sort of say at some point, you know, nihilism, it can be like a real mirror to like what we're afraid of. Like it really reflects our fears. And I, mm. I've been thinking about that a little bit with like the way yeah, like the history of childhood and the way we think about our ch- children, like you just project so many of like your personal and like social fears onto kids. They just become such mirrors of it, whether it's, you know, the sentimentality of like childhood in the Victor- Victorian age or like the satanic panic in the 80s. It's like yeah. you can pretty much just map the headlines onto the poor yeah. kids' like identity. So last question then, what what's next? Um, I know you're kind of still thinking about uh, these issues of nihilism, but uh, what do you what do you think is next? I don't know. I mean, I you know get this baby out, survive that. That's right. probably my first That's step. That's next. 
Uh, I'm still pretty involved. I mean, I will always be involved in my environmental work and that's kind of taking up a lot of energy at the time. I mean, mm. hopefully everyone who listens to this buys the book and it becomes a smash hit and I can yes, do whatever. Yes. I'm still just yes. starting to think about what I would like to write about next. And I, you don't, I, I always say like every journalist who has a baby suddenly becomes like a mommy, like writer. <laughs> and I was very much like, I don't want to be that. But then the more I think about it, as I said, I am getting very interested in like, the performance of parenthood in like a digital age. And as we said, mm. you know, each generation sort of has its flavor and its fears. And I'm, I can't help but um, being a bit of an internet oracle at the best of times. So I, I'm kind yeah. of like starting to look into that a little bit while also hoping it doesn't rot my brain. Wow. Very cool. Very but cool. Yes, well, when the book and then I can write about whatever I want. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Wendy Seifert's book, the full title is The Sunny Nihilist, A Declaration of the Pleasure uh, of the pleasure of Pointlessness. And um, this will be out in January when you hear the podcast. So when you hear it, do pick it up. It's been great having you on. Yeah, it's been lovely. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you.